What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Wilson. And Elton. And we're back with a fresh episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As we learn more about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. This week, we're going to kick off our three-part LA series. This is near and dear to our heart, and hopefully the next few guests will inspire you if you're ever considering LA. We're kicking it off with Mike Zhang, the co-founder and CEO of Shift Ventures a global consumer products company that builds brands around positive shifts in the world around us. In this week's episode, Mike Zhang is a serial entrepreneur. He is our first college dropout speaker. It was this very mature decision at such a young age during his freshman year at Berkeley when he was choosing between school and a growing business. His experience since then has definitely paid off. As he grew his company, he shares the idea of having to balance hiring his friends versus people outside of his network. And over time, he has been very mindful of the optics of favoritism and being transparent and crystal clear in how communication is critical to building culture. Mike and I went to the same high school. In fact, we're in the same English group project where we have to find a way to interview a local political leader, Judy Chu. And Mike found creative ways to get to her. And now Judy herself is part of the House of Reps. Early on, Mike exhibits a strong sense of entrepreneurship when he was buying and selling consumer products on eBay. It's no surprise that Mike's been so successful. We even voted him the most likely to succeed in high school. What's Mike's secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. Mike, you and I met in high school and I saw your hustle early on and you were voted the most likely to succeed and I take a lot of credit in that. Oh, I appreciate, I appreciate you uh, lobbying. I'm so relieved that like I've at least, you know, to like maybe 10% of my potential lived up to that because I wouldn't want to have like peaked there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wilson was telling me that I didn't even know those type of awards existed in yeah. high school. Yeah, it was a big deal. We had a pretty competitive high school. So a lot has happened since from founding and selling Airsoft Megastore, which instantly made you a millionaire at age 22, and now leading Drip Club, a leading e-liquid e-commerce company. Let's start by having you describe what is Drip Club and how did that experience and inspiration lead up to founding and leading that experience? So Drip Club started in 2014 as a, kind of like a Birchbox subscription service um, for people that vape, they use electronic cigarettes to discover new flavors. And I can't take the credit for actually founding the company. Two of my business partners and good friends started the company. I was intrigued by their organic you know, growth early on. And so it's evolved to a company called Shift Ventures, which mm. is our sort of corporate identity today. Drip Club is one of the sort of sub-brands that we have under Shift Ventures. And basically, in a nutshell, what we do is we develop flavored liquids that mm. go inside electronic cigarettes. And then the broader sort of mission statement is we want to make better-for-you consumer products to replace bad habits with better ones. And can you tell us a little more about how that inspiration or how did that all come together or the experience leading up to that? I guess I'll start in high school. So yeah. I started an e-commerce business, which, you know, was like the typical start in your bedroom. And that was when like there were auctions still, not just fixed price, you know, products. Uh, long story short, I started this e-commerce company in high school and four years into it, I, I got into Berkeley. Uh, I moved all my stuff, you know, to Berkeley Along the way, it turned into kind of what I thought at the time was kind of a real business. It had, you know, several million dollars in revenues, profitable. And it was an e-commerce retail company that sold airsoft guns. So they're like, you know, kind of like paintball guns. Mm -hmm. um, people use them for like military training. They, they use them to kind of uh, play with their friends, like, you know, paintball, like action sports. I decided uh, in my infinite wisdom and probably stupidity looking back that I would just put school on hold because I thought there was a sort of opportunity to kind of do like what Zappos and Amazon was doing at the time for e-commerce, but in the, in the specific 
category of airsoft where there weren't a lot of customer friendly, you know, companies. What was going on in your mind during that time? You were deciding between staying in school. Yeah. Um, a lot of people's dream school was Berkeley, right? And kind of just quitting and, and doing your own thing. I wish I could give an answer where it's like this very thought out, thoughtful, you know, like weighing the pros and cons. But I think at the time, the cons were I would lose maybe a year, a semester, a couple of years of my time and I could go back to school. And then I saw the opportunity in the market, of course, where I felt like the other two or three leading e-commerce companies in the space weren't really delivering on what I thought was just like a good customer experience. Not great, just good. You know, they didn't have great return policies and warranties and just everything was very like, you know, fly by night and how could you spend hundreds of dollars on this? You know, a lot of people bought this during the holidays because it's kind of like a toy, right? Um, sporting goods item. How could you rely on this e-commerce company like in California if you're like in Texas or Virginia or, you know, wherever the customer is? So I thought there's a lot of opportunity. And so I packed my stuff and... Uh, Drove back down to LA and never looked back. How did your parents react? Because oftentimes growing up, our parents are a little bit more conservative. They want us to finish school. I mean, they've only dreamt about us going to one of the top 10 schools, right? Yeah. And I think that, that you know, the, there definitely is merit to that, right? Like there's more of a, not guarantee, but you, you are given a lot of opportunity and a lot of access to, to network with peers that eventually could become your business partners or coworkers or, you know, mentors. So of course I didn't really think about all of that at the time. Like I thought about how do I not get kicked out of the house? You know, because I had to move back home. So I literally crashed in my friend's place on his couch for like oh, a wow. week. And then I think I sort of overstayed my welcome because his parents were like, when is Mike leaving? Like he can't stay here any longer. And I was like, okay, I think it's time to <laughs> go home. And I remember it was like, I think one, a Friday uh, evening before Halloween, a couple months at Berkeley. And then I showed up and I was like, Hey mom and dad, like I'm gonna move back. And they're like, what do you mean for the, like for the back for the weekend? Great. Like, no, I'm going to move back and like try to make a go of this business. And my mom flipped out, you know, like I thought my, both my parents are really progressive you know, they're very encouraging and, and, and all this. They were entrepreneurs themselves, right? So they kind of understand. Exactly, exactly. And I kind of used that against them. I was like, look, you can't exemplify what it means to like sort of do all this hard work and, and, and teach me the value of that. On the other hand, like not let me do what I want to do in this he business. Called them out. I was trying to use every trick in the book to let them allow me to stay. But in the end, I think we made a bet. And it was like, if, if I don't like, you know, triple the business or something, I would, you know, move back to Berkeley, like tail between my legs and re-enroll for a spring semester. I think that was the, that was the ultimatum I was given or, or actually the deal that I sort of negotiated with my mom. You know, I think my dad was like, okay, he's going through a phase, let him do his thing. If this doesn't work out, you know, maybe it's a year's lost time and so they were not pleased. And my mom threatened to disown me. She, she, she also That's pulled crazy. every trick in the book to try to get me to like go back. So at what point in time did they kind of change their opinions? I try to see my parents every weekend. And my mom will still bring up from time to time, hey, so have you thought about, you know, going back to school to finish your degree? But I think, you know, obviously they've accepted it more generally. Like that I'm, what I tell them is like, I try to own my own reality. And so if that means you know, making some missteps here and there, like you gotta let me sort of own those decisions and the consequences. But I think it was probably 
you know, maybe six or 12 months afterwards where they saw that we were growing and I had to hire, you know, more employees that I was giving it 125% that I think they finally left that subject matter alone. It was kind of a grueling, you know, time because on the one hand, there's the business and then on the other hand, you gotta go home and like your mom's yelling at you about going back to school. I think when they accepted the reality that there were gonna be consequences and hopefully they're not bad, you know, or terrible or like, you know, take me down this path that would sort of ruin my life. Once they sort of got over that initial like hysteria and fear uh, of the unknown, they were really, really supportive. So I think I lucked out on That's that awesome. front. Yeah, so I think there's two major pressures that at least I would have gone through. One part is family pressure, which you talked a lot about. How about peer and social pressure? Having started Berkeley one semester in, people are partying, hanging out, talking about other things. And do you feel any FOMO during that period of time? Yeah, definitely. I would say that that probably for me is something that, you know, like you get over the, oh, you know, I don't have to go to school anymore, right? I don't have to like do homework or study for exams. Like I actually have to like, you know, I have this giant chip on my shoulder, like, okay, I need to make sure this is like worth my while, right? That I'm, this is a big bet and there's, there's relative upside uh, for what I'm giving up. And I think that the social aspect of it was definitely something that carried through a lot. It was more of a long tail thing. It was like, oh, you know, like I, began to realize I was missing out on these opportunities to like make new friends. And so that I think was pretty challenging to get over. And I still think about that actually, you know, from time to time, obviously no regrets. And I have been really fortunate in terms of what has happened, but actually I had a close network of friends around me that sort of shared a lot of them, you know, went to USC and, you know, they shared their college experience with me. So I was I feel very fortunate. I feel like I got the best of both worlds. So we have a question about Airsoft, Megasaur actually. The time when you were given the offer to sell, what was going through your mind? Did you have a board of advisors that helped you think through the pros and cons of doing such a deal? Or how, what are some stakeholders you thought about? Investors, employees? Yeah, it's all of the above. And I think, you know, in the moment, it's a lot of noise and it's kind of your mood and what you're feeling, but the top two prevailing themes, if you will, was number one, my parents were the earliest and only investors, if you know, if you will, in the business, like they wrote the check to buy the, you know, first uh, shipment of inventory from, from China where we were exporting from at the time. And because we were bootstrapped and because e-commerce, you know, product business where you're fulfilling the product, you're warehousing the product, back then, you know, there wasn't like fulfillment by Amazon FBA, right? Where you can literally create an e-commerce company overnight, have Amazon do all your fulfillment, mm -hmm. right? There was sort of the concept of liquidity or basically when can my parents begin to like substantially and meaningfully enjoy like the success. And we've been really fortunate, right? Like to build off of the growth of Airsoft as a very specific action sport category. There was, for whatever reason, maybe the rise of Call of Duty and, you know, all of this uh, battlefield, you know, back then there were some cultural influences that definitely played into the, the rise of airsoft as a sport. All my younger cousins played airsoft <laughs> and like one of them actually shot me and hurt so bad. <laughs> They're probably customers. Yeah. yeah. I had a scar I, on my belly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have company retreats to go airsoft? We, we had a couple of uh, company airsoft games. There was one time I remember where we played at a, at a, you know, it was like a converted warehouse, you know, so it was indoors, very close quarters. They called it CQB, so close quarters battle. 
Uh, that sounds rem- painful. <laughs> yeah. And I remember somebody I worked with shot me in the head. <laughs> almost point blank. Uh, he said it was an accident. And then, like, I remember, like, him, like, buying me lunch the next day because I had a welt, like, on my forehead. So I think after that... Uh, it, he was not in the company. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm joking. He was terminated on the spot. No. Um, but after that, I think it was more and more infrequent. But it's funny because I... You know, like every little boy wants to play with like toy guns, right? But I wasn't, I don't think I was like an avid airsoft gun connoisseur. I enjoyed, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the different aspects of the sport and like the cool products. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I played that much. I maybe like my entire life I've played like a dozen times or something. One of the most rewarding parts that when we think about building companies is being able to hire people, provide jobs, build a company culture as well. And you've been fortunate enough to hire some of your closest friends. Can you tell us more about that experience in general? To add some color to that. So Airsoft, so I was involved like day to day as CEO from 2008, first you know, semester dropping out from Berkeley, all the way up through the sale of the company back in December of 2012. And I would say, the priority for me back then was don't hire friends because that was the conventional wisdom. Like you don't want to muck up like your friendships, which is totally, I think still very valid. And I think I was too immature. Like I wouldn't have been able to handle it. And all my friends are like 19, 20, <laughs> 21. So not to say that they're not smart, but as you scale a business, you, you think, oh, I need like the proverbial gray hairs, you know, the guy with experience, right? And so, so I didn't have any friends that worked there but at Shift Ventures, my two co-founders and partners were good friends of mine. And then we just sort of, I think there is a, a sweet spot for millennials that are incredibly ambitious, mission-driven, and intelligent, and, you know, like, work their asses off at these big, big companies, wanting a little bit, like, higher degree of control over where their career takes them. And so I think, fortunately, we've been able to provide that platform. So we've had friends and friends of friends join the company from all sorts of different professional backgrounds. Very fortunate to have those close relationships. Because I think now, if you're kind of in your mid to late 20s and early 30s, you're kind of like getting to the prime of your career or, you know, teeing yourself up for the prime of your career. And I've been incredibly fortunate to have, you know, friends sort of entrust their careers, which I think adds an extra degree of very positive pressure for me. Because one thing that I realized was I really enjoy when people count on me for something, like this degree of accountability. And it was kind of the same, you know, reflecting with like my parents, right? It was like, I felt this duty of like, you know, they basically at the time put down their life savings, you know, to buy this like container of toy guns. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous when you like look back, you're like, wait, like I was 14. And like, how, how in the world did they just write that check, you know, or make that wire? I think the flip side is you have to be incredibly sensitive to how that might be portrayed with, you know, everything from entry level positions to management team folks who aren't friends or friends of friends who don't feel like they're getting the wrong idea that you're fa- you know, playing favorites because you've known somebody. And what are some of the lessons learned? How, how has your experience been? Has it strengthened the relationship of your friends or have there been times where emotionally it was definitely a battle, uphill battle? I think that, as a great question, um, I think that I've been really fortunate that I haven't had these like sort of nuclear, you know, explosions of like friendships. And, 
you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And I'm sure there's a lot of sort of cognitive bias in my answer. But I guess just sitting here today, I think we try to be really candid and upfront whenever we before we get into a, a working relationship. You know, one of the last kind of conversations we have before an offer letter is sent or signed, if it's a friend or you know a, even a close friend, is hey, you know, so just so you know, here are kind of all the risks, here's all the rewards, because so much of um, working chemistry is how much do you trust somebody and how much can you be free to completely speak your mind about what it is that you expect of them? Because so much of that social pressure otherwise clouds communication. And so I think we've been able to take advantage of all of the pros and then mitigate any sort of the downside risk by being like candid about, okay, if this doesn't work out, like literally let's go through the scenarios of, can we find you another job? You know, is it like just mismatch of your, your work experience and we just called it and we were incorrect, in which case we'll take responsibility. Or is it just literally like you're not up to par and we have to be prepared for that outcome. So it's it's kind of like going through the mental exercise of like envisioning all the different ways it could blow up and then hoping that it doesn't. Yeah, I remember when we started, a lot of my friends and I think my family was like, you should never start a company with someone that you're a friend with because he's just disastrous. And they're like, you and Wilson are such good friends that who knows what might happen. And, and I'm also curious that how do you balance the, the one part where the ease of hiring people that you already know and this, the balance of diversity and friction of hiring people you don't know and for diversifying your team, whether it's background, ethnicity, skill set and whatnot. Do you find that tension or like that balance is pretty, pretty clear in your mind? We try not to overthink it. So if there's tension and at times there may be, then we try to remedy it. And a lot of times it's just communication. Like, you know, it could be something as you think is trivial as, look, I need to take this manager out to lunch to talk about these issues, then I need to take this other manager out to lunch to talk about these other issues, and somebody that maybe just joined the company might say, why is this person who happens to be the CEO's friend getting taken out to lunch all the time, right? So it could be as something as simple as in like an optics thing where it's a miscommunication. So we try to be overly communicative, but I think when you're upfront about the communication and kind of what's like at risk, but also like what's the downside, what's the upside, and you're clear about that, I think it's actually a lot more smooth than people would expect. What's a really good communication channel for something like this? I think it's a evolving process. You, you think about it like a communication plan, you're like, okay, so at the all hands, it's gonna be this grand you know, thing that we're gonna communicate and always has to be positive and you know, here's what we're doing and here's, here's what we're going after. And I think when you set those expectations where you're almost like, oh, I spent so much time on this kind of revised mission statement. I, and you're expecting like this outpouring of support. A lot of times you find that you just have tunnel vision and it's, you're married to this idea of communicating this like romantic vision of what the company is going to be because that's what you've been thinking about living, breathing, because that's a bigger part of your job, right? To think about the strategy and stuff. And I found that over time, what's a lot more effective is just casually reminding people what the mission is, like asking them, like not telling them, but asking them like, what do you enjoy about being here? What do you enjoy about the mission? And you know, are you being clearly communicated to in terms of how you're impacting us 
accomplishing our vision for the company. And, and I think a lot of times when it's more interactive, it's kind of like, you know, when you try to memorize something versus like, versus like you're interacting with knowledge you're trying to absorb, it's, it's an easier, you know, more organic process. We want to bring it back to a little bit more of your upbringing and how you grew up, the community you grew up in, and how did it shape who you are today as a person, but also as a CEO, founder in two companies now? I mean, there's like the whole like, you know, how your upbringing and you know, like affects how you are psychologically. So I, let's, we won't get into that because I'm not an expert in that. I just, but I will say that, you know, connecting the dots, there's definitely a lot of heavy influence in terms of like how, how I was raised and, you know, and all of that. So I grew up actually in Beijing. So I was born in China. My family's from Shanghai and I, for the first five years of my life, actually grew up in Beijing. And I would say like pretty conventional upbringing with the exception that like my mom, she worked for the American embassy. So I kind of got a glimpse into like the Western, a westernized world, if you will. And like when I was growing up, so the early nineties in Beijing, it was a really interesting time because I think it was when economically speaking, the country was beginning to embrace capitalism. I think in the eighties is when like you know, foreign companies would come into China and like set up or, you know, negotiate manufacturing agreements like for the cheaper cost of labor and all that kind of stuff. But the infrastructure was still developing, it was developing very rapidly. So I kind of got a glimpse of China, what I would characterize as old China, because every single time I've been back ever since my childhood, it's been like high rises and like McDonald's and Starbucks and like pretty much all the Western comforts that are so uh, typical here in the States. And then I lived with my grandparents for a couple of years because my, both my parents had immigrated to the U.S. to basically try to, you know, begin to make a living so that they could then bring me over. And I think it was pretty formative for me because I was able to live away from my parents and then, like, get almost reintroduced to them. Like, you know, and I think a couple of years when you're, like, a kid, it makes a big difference. How many years was that? It was two years. And I remember, so I would get like bounced around between like all my aunts and uncles and be like, all right, who's like going to deal with this troublemaker for like this weekend, right? They like, you know, share the babysitting responsibility, my, my cousins and stuff too. One of my uncles on my dad's side, he was starting this business, this giant like tea plantation a couple hours outside of Shanghai. So uh, there was a period of time where I'd spend my weekends there and he would, you know, teach me about literally like making money and like he's like here's how you do it you always try to be generous be really respectful you try to be honest you try to be you know completely upfront with people if the tea's bad tell them it's a bad season and you know you'll get them something better and try to give them a discount so there's a lot of these values that i think back on now where i was just like oh like i didn't really care back then but part of it was also just him probably seeing that i was like crazy hyper and putting me to work, like literally, like, oh, go pick like tea leaves for like four hours and come back when you're like, really tired, you know? So I think it was a really formative experience because that contrast of, you know, seeing capitalism take form almost in China um, in those early years and then being like accelerated into like, you know, Los Angeles, it was, it was like, whoa, you know, there's so much opportunity here. I didn't, necessarily frame it in that way when I was a kid, but it was just like very eye-opening because it was different, you know. And I'm curious about all of your family members, your parents and your uncles and aunts. Traditionally, Asian parents really like that their kids are doctors, lawyers, maybe accountants in those industries. 
but you're working in industries like airsoft and e-liquid and traditionally those are more opaque industries right how do they feel about you entering these industries and how do you feel about that also i think my parents have been my parents have been really supportive my family's been really supportive i would say personally i really take everything as sort of like a learning experience and so with shift ventures the way that we're approaching like new product development and innovation in terms of getting into new product categories is framing it thematically like you know what are some habits that are bad you know for people like in terms of their health and how can we through products and through better marketing and and more clever branding and market penetration get to those people and by consuming or by identifying with our products and our brands change those bad habits into better ones. So I think, you know, in terms of the products, I'm trying to do my best to use them as sort of a starting point and then build kind of the business ecosystem and platform around those products and then build what I think are more like things that I'm more personally invested in and passionate about. So my parents are fine with it, but me personally, I think with Shift Ventures and what I do now, like day to day, one of the biggest challenges and also sources of fulfillment is finding those new product categories where literally through products you can change and improve people's habits. I'm curious how is your leadership style based off your upbringing and the values that are ingrained in you? How would you describe that? I would probably, if I had to characterize it, I think it's probably different depending on kind of the occasion. You know, there's like the when people say there's a wartime CEO and a peacetime CEO, right? And, you know, in in growth mode or early stage, you're probably more wartime execution focused. And then you have to kind of flip the switch of, okay, when do I become a business leader and not an entrepreneur necessarily, but somebody that's able to bring in high caliber talent, motivate those guys, you know, train the trainer, so to speak, right? But, you know, to characterize it now, I think, and and for the foreseeable future in terms of like this next stage of growth, it's definitely like servant leadership. I think when you have an alignment of the company's financial best interests and your people and their best interests, be it, you know, financial or career kind of uh, trajectory, you know, all of those things that make for people that are really engaged and passionate about what they do, there's really no place, in my opinion, for kind of the dictator or, you know, the micromanager. It's sort of like this preeminent theme of just do the right thing. But then so much, it's so simple to kind of oversimplify, but so much of that is, do you have the right people? And do you have people that can give you the benefit of the doubt as their leader that even if you might be doing something that they view as not just contrarian, but like oh, I don't know if that's the best decision. Can they still come around to support the decision, you know, for better or for worse? And so I think it's a trust-building exercise constantly where a huge part of it is communication, like continue to communicate what it is that we're getting up, you know, early in the morning and staying late for at times and telling them and, you know, communicating to them that it's ultimately not just for me or for the company, but it's for them. And so if our... Ideally, if we all do our jobs correctly, there should be alignment in terms of where they're trying to go in their life and how the company can be used as a vehicle or platform to kind of get there. I love that part. I remember um, seeing you go through some of those ups and downs and and I'm glad some of those worked out. (laughs) In those times when there's a lot of these big challenges and you become potentially this wartime CEO, do people bond closer together or do do people loosen up and, and kind of lose confidence? 
If I had to put myself in their shoes, I think there are definitely times where, you know, there are definitely times where uncertainty is in the air more so than there's a certainty of mission and certainty of outcome. And that's where I think, you know, you get into like, who do you have on your team? And, you know, are they, are they giving you the benefit of the doubt? So yeah, I think it's a tough question to answer, but I've definitely been there in situations where you're like, oh man, so much is riding on this decision or our ability to pull off these goals. Probably a month or a quarter's worth of like taking risks and making bets and just doing whatever it is you're setting out to do will teach you a lifetime of lessons over above and beyond like planning and writing the full, you know, doing the five-year financial model and like just doing, I feel like is, yeah, there's something about that. Like just just getting in there and executing. How do your closest friends react when you're a different type of person, right? I, I think about that a lot as, as I'm growing and changing through these different phases of leadership. And we could talk about it for days. Yeah. But I always think about like, wow, it, I'm, I'm changing as a person also. Um, and I'm trying to adapt to the situation that I'm trying to manage and lead. But I always wonder like those around me, is it better or is it worse? And do they have that support behind you? Yeah, I think I've been really fortunate. All my close friends are extremely supportive but I've definitely gotten the comment because a lot of my close friends I work with I'm in one capacity or another and they're like Mike you're like totally different at the office like sometimes you're like kind of scary and I'm just like wait what I just I I think not to like put a hundred percent weight into this but I've taken my like Myers-Briggs test and I'm an INFJ so I think I'm in my I'm in my own little world. I'm in my head a lot, right? And, and I think it, I could probably flip on the, the sort of extroverted switch, whether it's like I need to present something at a, at a meeting or, you know, networking or I need to close a deal or something like that. But otherwise, I think sometimes my introspection and my like tendency to just kind of think before speaking might be misinterpreted. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I try to ask my friends from time to time just because otherwise... No one's going to tell you if you're like, you know, scary or different at work. They're just like, oh, that's how they are. But I want to know. I want to, you know, get better at, because ideally it's not like two identities. It's more just like, oh, it's a different part of you that you're showing. You guys probably, especially given like the the culture at WeWork or, or it just like, you know, having like very, the camaraderie of like, like like-minded, similar age people. It's like you're a different almost a different version of yourself, right? Sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And, and I'm trying to figure that out, right? And find myself and what that leadership style is oftentimes. I think we have a culture of love and mm. a culture of camaraderie and teamwork and we very much so. Um, but there's also high goals and, and right. times where we need to achieve a lot of results very quickly and very fast. And I think it's it's that matter of balance of how, how, do, how do you differentiate which person to be? Yeah, mm-hmm. What one um, thing that was really helpful for me in terms of framing it, like recently is I... I uh, started reading this book called Radical Candor uh, by Kim Scott. And I think about the same way, like with my closest friends, I am probably the most unfiltered. I probably say some aggressive, maybe downright mean things, but it all stems from a place of love, right? It's, it's like tough love. You know they're going to understand, give you the benefit of the doubt that you're not trying to hurt them. Even though it hurts in the moment, maybe it stings. But, you know, I think that's probably one way that I've really learned to deal with it is like, do I really care about this person's well-being like genuinely? And if so, I shouldn't be afraid to hurt their feelings because so much of it is like, you don't want to be the bad guy. You just want to like, you know, give them praise and all this stuff. But that's, that ultimately can be very helpful in moving the needle for 
giving praise and giving recognition when it's due, but you also have to, on the flip side, mm-hmm. know how to communicate that, hey, things are not being done appropriately. So it's extra hard when it's a friend because it's like, it's personal. So for our final question that we usually ask our guests is, what is your secret sauce, both figuratively and literally, that's gotten you to where you are now? I think I am gonna forever just be a really curious learner. So I think if, if you marry an intellectual curiosity with perseverance, I don't define perseverance or some people call it grit, I guess. I don't define it as like doing the same thing a million times over and expecting a different result. I define it more as trying to find your way through the maze, but trying to remember that if you took the wrong route, not giving up and trying again and trying to find a different route. And I think marrying those two things has definitely given me a lot of like very fortuitous opportunities that I've been able to identify and sort of capitalize on. So yeah, that, that definitely would probably be the primary thing. Because when, you know, when I sold Airsoft, I didn't know a thing about accounting. I had to interview <laughs> investment banks. You know, I was like Googling things on conference calls as I went. So it was kind of like very intimidating, but at the same time, best way to learn. And I think the other thing is probably just trusting your instinct. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but knowledge is a commodity. And it's, it's, it's you know, through Google and, and Quora and all of the technology that's available to us, computers are doing our thinking, literally, right? Machine learning and AI is, I mean, those are not just buzzwords. Those are things that are literally going to change the, the macro drivers and the, the underlying structure of our economies. So I think it's worth talking about because what's going to, I think, I believe, be more and more, not just like in demand, but going to have a higher and higher value is your intuition and your ability to kind of make human judgment and sense out of certain situations, reading people, reading other people, you know, reading business situations, uh, social, you know, emotional intelligence, right, is such a big element of how really amazing leaders succeed. It's the extra 10% that puts them over the top. Trying to shut up the voice in my brain that's like, no, like, just like, do, play it the safe route, you know, and, and listening to my intuition that, look, if you make this bet, the worst thing that happens is you're wrong and you learn a lesson, but if you're right, it's a self-validating cycle of honing in your compass. So Mike, what is your actual favorite sauce that you like to eat food with and with your friends and your family? I'm gonna sound really lame, but it's ketchup. Have you had Star Kensington's? No, I haven't. Oh, you have to have it, it's amazing. I just, I've had Heinz, like fancy ketchup, yeah. and that's, yeah, I, wait, what is it called? Sir Kensington's. Sir Kensington's. You have to oh, have it. okay, all right, I gotta add that to yeah. the list. It's a New York-based startup that makes fancy ketchup, but so good. That sounds right up my alley, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and sign up for our newsletter for the latest updates and special surprises. Also, treat yourself and a friend to a Fish Sauce t-shirt from our swag store, fishsaucepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you rocking down the streets. If our mission resonates with you, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share with your friends so we can welcome them into our Fish Sauce family. And lastly, big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce. What's What's your your secret secret sauce? sauce?